series right now called um, Psalms, the Soundtracks for Life. And uh, this morning we're reading out, uh, we're going to read Psalm chapter 8. And uh, we're just going to read the whole thing right off the bat here. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app or uh, something that will, you can follow along, I'd love to have you join me as I read through this. Um, Psalm chapter 8, verse 1 says this. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. There's a story in the Bible about a guy named Moses, and some of you have probably heard this story before, but Moses reaches this point in life where he is just desperate to see God, and he wants to see God so bad, and he's asking God, he's saying, Lord, show me your glory. And the Bible has this, it tells about how God put Moses in the cleft of a rock, and he, he passed by him in all of his glory. Well, if you're desperate to see the glory of God, what we just read in Psalm 8-1 says that God, you, you can see it, and you know one of the ways you can see it? You walk out of here, and you just look around. He has set his glory, the Bible says, in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under, all, under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the, the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen? Um, when I was younger, um, as in my, uh, when I was a, a teenager and in my young adult years, I used to watch a lot of sports. And uh, I spent hours upon hours upon hours watching uh, really five sports in particular. I'd watch a lot of hockey growing up in Canada. Um, I watched uh, a lot of baseball, a lot of NBA basketball, a lot of college basketball, and uh, what was the fifth one? Did I say football? Yeah, football. And, uh, and then the Olympics would come along, and I would just binge watch Olympics for two weeks straight and just watch tons and tons of sports. And uh, then I started having kids, and my sports watching and my TV watching in general saw a very dramatic decline. And so now when it comes to sports, pretty well the only sports that I ever watch now are, uh, are the Seahawks. And so looking forward to that kicking off here soon. But, but being a sports guy growing up in the 80s and the 90s, I was pretty fortunate to be able to watch two of the GOATs um, when it comes to sports. Uh, of course, talking about Wayne Gretzky and Michael Jordan. And uh, if you think there's some, some debate as to whether or not they're the go GOATs, um, I'm sorry you're wrong. But <laughs> don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> um, but I looked up to these guys in a really big way. When I was just a kid in my elementary age years, I had Wayne Gretzky posters all over my wall, and then I became a teenager, and I had Michael Jordan posters all over my wall. These guys were my heroes. And uh, at least until recently, um, this documentary on Michael Jordan came out, The Last Dance. I know some of you have seen that, and I had to watch it. And as I did, the glory of Michael Jordan specifically, shall we say, um, faded significantly. And uh, it was surprising to watch this and just see how petty he was and how easily offended he was and vengeful. In fact, 
Um, there's this line that he quotes over and over again in this, this documentary about, and it, it goes like this, just how somebody would do something or say something or to him, and, and his line was, I took that personal. I took that personal. And uh, it's actually become this massive meme on the internet, this, this line. Uh, he was also pretty self-centered. Um, it was known that he, he was, whatever room that he was in, he was always the most important person in that room. And uh, stories have been told about how when, when he would board the Gulf Stream jet, it would take off right away as soon as he stepped on. Even at times, leaving behind people who weren't quite ready to go at the same time that Michael Jordan was ready to go. Um, when he'd be awake in the hotel, it didn't matter if it was 2 o'clock in the morning, all the lights were up or were on and everybody else was up because Jordan's awake and everybody else has to be awake. People would cater to his every whim. And, and all these uh, weren't exactly traits that you look for in a hero. And uh, it got to the point where with, with Jordan, he had this security detail, and his security detail had names, uh, code names for everybody on the team. And most of the code names they had were uh, kind of silly code names like Venom, Butler, Harmony. But these wouldn't do for Jordan. No, they needed to have something that carried a little more weight, a little more importance, a little more gravity. And so uh, they gave him the nickname. Does anybody know what this is? You get five bonus points if you get it right. No, Yahweh. He wanted to be called, he was, he was called Yahweh, uh, the name for God himself that we find in Psalm chapter 8. And um, as great as athletes like Jordan and Gretzky are, and, um, you know, 100, 200, 300, 500, 1,000 years from now, their names are going to be nothing more than blips in a history book, if that. And you could take the greatest person that you know. It could be a president. It could be a Nobel Prize winner. It could be uh, some leader. It's absolutely no different. There is only one name that will forever be called majestic, glorious, and good. And that is the name of our God, like we just read about in Psalm chapter 8. The Hebrew word for uh, Lord, so the, the, the scripture starts off by saying, Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name? That Hebrew word for Lord is actually the word that they gave Jordan here, but uh, it's, the, it's, that, it's the, the Hebrew word Yahweh. And that word Yahweh actually was first um, revealed as, as Moses, you know, the story where he's in the, the desert there and he stumbles across this burning bush and out of this burning bush, this bush that doesn't burn, God begins to speak and God begins to call Moses to do uh, certain things to lead the Israelites out of Egypt and Moses says, well, when I go to them, how, how am I going to tell them that you sinned? Like, what, what is your name? How, what, when they ask Moses, who sent you? What do you want me to say? And God says, this is what I want you to say. Tell them, I am who I am has sent you. And, and in other words, God is saying, I, will, I always have and always will exist. I am. That's my name. I am who I am. And out of that, that name comes this this. this, this this word, this name, Yahweh. But he's I am. He doesn't change. His character is steadfast. He's, he's this never-ending source of energy. When it comes to God, what you believe or don't believe about him has absolutely zero bearing on his existence. He is who he, he is. And it's, it's like this. I can say I don't believe in the sun. I can say it doesn't exist. Or I can say, I believe the sun is the best thing ever, and I spend all the glorious days of summer just basking in the sun. Or I can say the sun is the worst thing ever, and just spend all my days in the summertime just like curtains shut, just hiding out in the darkness. I, I can believe whatever I want to believe about the sun, 
And you know what is never affected by my belief? The sun. It doesn't matter what I believe about the sun. It's going to keep on being and doing what it does. It's going to keep on shining in all of its glory. And David begins Psalm 8 by declaring the Lord, Yahweh, I am who I am. His name is majestic in all of the earth. And then for the rest of this, this psalm, he goes on to share some of the ways that God's name is majestic in all, all the earth. And we're going to talk about three of these ways that we see in this passage of Scripture that, that God's name is majestic, glorious, beautiful, wonderful in all the earth. First way that we see his name is majestic is that, that he is the creator who made the heavens and the earth. When I read or watch um, Lord of the Rings, I can't help but think how creative of a mind J.R. Tolkien had to put that whole thing together. When I watch a gymnast routine in the Olympics or whatever, I can't help but marvel at the athleticism of these athletes who are flipping and turning and twisting in the middle of the, the air. When I eat a meal carefully prepared by, by a great cook, I can't help but be amazed at the, their skill and their attention to flavors and details and just crafting and putting it all together. And whether it's a creative work, a gymnast routine, or an incredible meal, these all point to and say something about the person who put them all together. And when we look at creation, the heavens and the earth, they say a lot about the person who put them together. And, you know, there... there there's a lot that points to the glory of God, but there's, there's not a lot in this world, in life, that points to the glory and the majesty of God quite as much as creation does. You know, if you just take the human body alone, and, 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 and we could spend weeks upon weeks unpacking all the, the complexity and how it's so intricately and wonderfully designed by God— and just see there just the, the majesty of God. Let me just give you briefly some of the ways that your body points to the majesty and the greatness of God. Your brain has 10 billion nerve cells interacting in coordination that allow you to function as you do. 10 billion nerve cells. Your eyes have about 100 million receptor cells in each retina which also contain four other layers of nerve cells. They, the, the system makes billions of calculations per second. Not per year, per second. Your, your nerves in your eyes, cells, whatever, they're billions of calculations. Your heart is going to pump 3,000 gallons of blood today. Your digestive system contains 35 million glands that secrete, secrete juices to digest your food and sustain your life. And this is, this is saying nothing of your hearing, your taste, your smell, your immune system, the incredible process from conception through to, to, to giving birth. And this is just the human body. Then, then there's the heavens out there. David just had to look up on a starry night sky where he would have um, never been able to see, according to scientists, more than 9,500 stars. It's all really that David knew back in the day, just that, wow, there's all these bright stars in, in the sky. But even then, just the sheer vastness and the complexity of, of, it, of it boggled his mind. How much more today, when we know so much more about the vastness and the complexity of the, the universe that we live in? If you could travel at the speed of light 
What's the speed of light? It's like a science test this morning. Speed of light, 186,000 miles per second. If you could travel at the speed of light, you know how long it would take you to get to the sun? Eight minutes, going 186,000 miles per second. And then to go from the sun to the center of the Milky Way would take about 33,000 years. And, and it's, the, the Milky Way itself belongs to this group of some 20 galaxies. It's just incredible. I mean, we, we talk about these stats, and you can't even, or these facts, and you just can't even wrap your mind around it. And God spoke, and out of his being, all of this was created. And David understood that the heavens and the earth were one of the most powerful displays of his glory. He saw it, and he knew that it pointed to not just the existence of God, but the absolute, indescribably great glory of God. It's why over in Psalm 19, he wrote this. He said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world, doing what? Declaring the glory and the greatness and the majesty of our Lord, our God. And, and you know what's interesting is that from the beginning of time, humanity has looked at all of that out there and come to the conclusion that there must be a God. It's actually only in recent history that philosophers, scientists have all seen all this and attributed all that to random chance, to an, to an evolutionary process um, where nature supposedly creates rather than God doing the creating. And, you know, there's a lot of debate about whether the earth is young and whether the earth is old. I actually personally believe that there is room in the, in, in the, the creation account for, for, it, for you to believe that God somehow worked through evolution. I personally believe in a six-day creation, that that's literal, that's what happened, but I think there's room for you to believe that somehow gradually it happened over time. But, but what, what, what you, you can't get around is that all of that, this, that there is, there, there's, how could that possibly have happened unless somebody was behind the scenes making it happen? To believe that everything... The, the, the complexity and the intricacy of the human body in all of creation just sort of magically happen is something that actually requires more faith than the belief that it was created by God. Everyone who's listening, you know, at some point, you have to, you have to step back and go, okay, how did we all get here? You know, whether you believe in God or not, you have to address that question. How did we all get here? How do we get here? And let me tell you this, just because some smart professors and people that maybe are, are very intelligent say it happened without God doesn't make that true. In fact, to say that everything got here by chance is, is just foolishness. It's foolishness. It's choosing to live completely blind to the obvious. It's no different than looking around at this building here and going, I choose to believe that this just got here by random chance over millions of years. You can believe that if you want, but it's pretty obvious that even this with its, its, its small complexity compared to our bodies in the universe got here because someone designed it and someone put it together. And when we stand before God, no one will be able to say, I didn't know you existed. Nobody. 
Nobody can stand before the maker of heaven and earth and say, I, did, I just didn't know you existed. There's going to be no excuse. In fact, the Bible itself says it like this. It says in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. It's clearly seen. It's clearly seen. And, and the existence of God is in plain sight. And the more science uncovers the mysteries of the universe. You know, sometimes you hear people say that science and Christianity are opposed to each other. I don't know who came up with that line, but it's so not true. The more science uncovers the mysteries of the universe and the, the complexity of the, the human body and DNA and all this kind of stuff, it, it, it reveals the impossibility of everything just magically being here without an intelligent designer. It does. Which then begs the question, well, okay, if if it is so obvious that someone put this all here, if, if, if it points to, to a God, then, then why do so many people still not believe? There's this guy named Richard Brooks, um, and we talked a little bit about him in a series we did a few years ago, but he, he spends his life defending Christianity on university campuses. And he often runs into opposition to the belief that God put everything here and um, of course, right away, first year of, of university, it's, I remember going through some of, of Tori's books from Wazoo in her first year, and it's just inundated with, with uh, teaching and, uh, around anthropology and all this, and how that just was evolution. There's no God in any of it. And so um, he, this guy Richard Brooks, he often defends Christianity, and, and, um, and when it comes to that question, well, why, why do so many still not believe, he says, he explains why, and this is what he says. He says, I've been challenged repeatedly on university campuses with this challenge. You're going to have to prove to me that God exists and Christianity is true. Then his response goes something like this. He says, well, if I do, will you believe in him and follow Christ? And when they say no, I respond, your problem is not a lack of information. If you have all your questions answered and still don't believe, then your real problem is spiritual, not intellectual. And creation in modern-day science provides more than enough information. No, the problem isn't that we don't have enough information about the existence of God and in, in, in us and in, in everything that he's created. The problem is that people don't want to have to deal with God. Don't want to have to deal with God. The Bible makes it very clear, and, and you just have to dig into some of the, the facts about the human body in, in creation to, to see that the heavens and the earth, all of creation, silently shouts, there is a God. And not, does it, not only does it, it silently shout that there is a God, it also silently shouts, this God, he's pretty majestic. He's pretty powerful, creative, great, all-knowing. We could go on and on. So the first thing that we see here um, in this passage about the greatness of God is that about the name of God and why it's great is that creation in, heaven and in, in, in the heavens and the earth, we see just how majestic and powerful he is. Next, we see the majesty and greatness of his name and the way that he works through weakness to accomplish his plans. The Bible says that through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. So God 
in all of his wisdom and power, he creates the universe, and the Bible says he creates humanity to have glory and honor of, of our own that's a little bit lower than the angels, the Bible says. And then the, what does God do? He puts us in charge. You know, it's in the Garden of Eden. He puts, he puts us in charge. He makes us rulers over the works of his hands. And since the beginning, though, we've mistaken, um, we, we, we've been mistaken in believing that it's through our strength and our might and our power in our way that we're going to fulfill the purpose for which we've been created. But that's just not so. It's, it's in my weakness when I come before him in humility and in my lack that his plans and his purposes are established. And, and this is God's way. And we see this so clearly in this verse here. It says that when children and infants, the weakest members of, of humanity, when they praise God, which is to say your baby's cry is not necessarily always a cry for more food. Somehow, and God only knows how this works, there's, there's worship there, there's praise there at times. But when children and infants, the Bible says, praise him, he establishes a stronghold against his enemies, and the foe and the avenger, it says, is silence. Crazy. Now, when I read that verse, just a little side note, when I read the last line, I got totally sidetracked with trying to figure out what exactly it is that the avengers are avenging. Um, <laughs> apparently, by the way, they have nothing to avenge. It's just a cool name. But anyway, back to our sermon. Um, God works through weakness. He works through weakness. Why? Because when we put ourselves aside, it makes less of us and opens the door for him to make much of himself. Which, by the way, is always a good thing when you consider that he is always good, always faithful, always loving, always full of hope, and we aren't. We want to put ourselves to the side so that the spotlight can be shining on him. And to try to make it about me when I'm just a flea, a temporary speck on the canvas of history, as one author put it, to try to make it about me would be absolute craziness. Why would God choose to work like that? You know, our culture believes that getting things done, accomplishing much, is all about strength. Um, the more strength, the better, but that's not how it works in God's economy of things. That's not how it works in his kingdom that's eternal. No, he works through our weakness to display his glory and to accomplish his purposes. In fact, 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And this is one reason why the wrong answer, whenever God asks you to do something, the wrong answer is always, no, because I don't have what it takes. It's the wrong answer. The, the answer when you say that, by the way, you're actually kind of half right because you don't have what it takes. But understand something. This actually puts you in precisely the position that God will work through the most when you confess, God, I don't have what it takes. But that doesn't really matter because I know that you have what it takes. And when you do that, you open the door for God to do incredible things in and through your life. And he will work through you to advance his kingdom, to bring truth, to show his love, to show his mercy to a world desperately, desperately, desperately in need. God choose, chooses to work through the weak things of this world. He chooses to work through our weakness to show his greatness. And by doing this, he puts his name that's majestic and glorious and beautiful. He puts his name on display. And then lastly, we see the greatness 
the majesty of God in the way that he cares so, so deeply for us. He cares so deeply for us. David writes, when I consider all of this, I just imagine him being out there and he's just looking up at the moon and the stars and it's, it's I mean, there was just not a lot, a lot of light pollution back then. Actually, no light pollution really. It's, it would have been a very starry sky that he was looking at as he's writing this. this and, and, and when he's looking at all this, he's just considering, God, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Humanity, he says, that you care for them. And David's dilemma here is not one that a lot of people in our day and age tend to wrestle with. We don't wrestle with this a lot. It's not often that we, can, we stop and consider why God, in the vastness of his being, in the vastness of creation, why does God care so much for humanity? And one of the reasons could be that, that God is just getting pushed further and further out of sight as we elevate ourselves more and more. You know, I found these, uh, the billionaire space race, I just found it fascinating the last couple months watching Richard Branson and, and Bezos as they, they race to see who can be the first one up in space. And I'm not sure how, you're, how much you were following that, but it, it was crazy watching how these guys just spent billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars so they could go up to space. I mean, it was kind of a little bit debatable whether that was like true space or whatever. But um, then if you're, if you're watching all the, the post-flight uh, interviews, it's, what did you hear in all these interviews? Just like going on and on about the ingenuity and the creativity and how, how, how humanity is just set our minds to anything. We can just do the impossible. Um, Bezos went on, of course, about how he was so thankful for all of us that have spent thousands of dollars at Amazon. And thank you for making my trip happen is basically what he says. And, and they just go on and on and on, though, about just humanity and how nothing's impossible for us. 50 years ago, as the Apollo 11 crew was returning from space, Buzz Aldrin, one of the guys on that flight, it was a little bit of a different scene. Rather than celebrating the, the, the ingenuity of mankind, Buzz Aldrin pulls out his, his Bible, and where does he go to? He reads Psalm 8. And as he's looking there at, at the beauty of planet Earth, just surrounded by all the blackness of space he reads god who are we that you should care for us in the middle of this vast cosmos you know we just don't wrestle with that question as much anymore and furthermore when we consider god the conundrum that we want to address the most is does he even care at all you know with all the pain in the world god with all the suffering in the world we argue surely he doesn't even care for us at all and we, we get upset and say, God, why don't you do more for us? After all, God, we are humans, and we deserve better. Do you even care at all? Make no mistake about it. God does not owe us anything. He doesn't owe us anything. Our sense of entitlement is more actually a reflection on how our view of self is so out of whack compared to our view of God. Yes, as we just read in Psalm 8, God comes along and he gives us dignity, value, worth. But, but all that is only there in the first place because it's God who gives it. David, in this psalm, he seemed to grasp our smallness compared to God's greatness in a way that we just don't typically do here in the 21st century. And it left him saying, 
God, why? Not God, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world, but God, why do you even care for us at all? And, and just think for a second, just, just think for a second, how much more incredulous would David have been on the other side of the cross? Because this God doesn't just care for us from a distance. No, this God who created us and who created everything out there, who's all-powerful, all-knowing, who, who's, who's, who's never changing, this God, he, he doesn't just care for us from, from a distance. No, this God cares so much for humanity that when he saw us in our sin and brokenness, he doesn't just wipe us out or leave us just condemned and broken. No, this God cares so much that he steps down into his creation. He becomes one of us, and, and then he gives his life on a cross, opening the way for us to know him and have eternal life. You see, Psalm 8, it needs a Savior. It needs a Savior. Because this, this God, he's, he's, he's majestic, and he's powerful, and he... He, he, puts, he strings up the stars and the galaxy and he creates us. And then what does he do? He comes along and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you rulers of everything. Everything. And then what do we do? We messed it all up. We messed it all up. We've turned our back on God. We've, we've denied that he even exists. Um, we've decided to do things our way. And in effect, you know what we've chosen? We've chosen pain, suffering, and death. But thank God that he cares so, so deeply for us. That he didn't just leave us there. Instead, he does the unthinkable and, and lays down his life for us. Forever answering the question, where is God in our pain? The answer to that question is he's right there with you. He knows pain and he knows suffering because he went through immense pain and suffering so that you could have the life that is found only in him. And in Psalm 8, you know, it's interesting in this psalm, we're actually never called to do anything. In a lot of the Bible, you, you, you read, uh, even the psalms that we've read so far, there's it's almost like a call to maybe hide in him. He's your refuge. He's your strength. Run to him. Lift your eyes up to the mountains. That's where your help comes from. You know, be like that person that's a tree that's rooted deep, meditating in God's word. But in Psalm 8, there's, there's no next step in Psalm 8. Read the whole thing. There's, there's, there's no, hey, here's what you need to do. And why is that? It's because in light of who God is and all that he's done, there is really only one response that's adequate. And that response is worship. It's pure, simple, God-glorifying worship. God, your name. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this morning, God, we lift you up on high. There is nobody, nobody like you. And Lord, this morning... Or God, whenever this is being watched or listened to, God, there's somebody listening right now who just needs to know how great you are, how powerful you are, how majestic you are. 
God, maybe they're looking at their own life and how it just feels like it's crumbling around them, how it's just broken. And God, they just look at their own life and they just think, oh, it's such a mess. God could never do anything in and through my life. And God, they just need to know this morning that you are a great God, a God who specializes in taking us in our brokenness, in our failure, in our sin, in, in healing us, forgiving us, and then redeeming our lives for the sake of your great name. God, I ask that you would give somebody, God, just an incredible amount of hope in, in, the, in, the, in the God that we serve. And then, God, there's, there's maybe somebody that is listening to this who is just feeling abandoned. God, maybe they are going through a valley of some sort. Maybe they're just going through some kind of just difficulty, hardship in life, and they're feeling abandoned. And God, what they need to hear from you this morning, God, just how much you care for them. You care so, so deeply for us that, God, it makes no sense. Makes no sense. Makes no sense, especially in light of our sin, especially in light of the way that we have turned our back on you and betrayed you. God, it makes no sense, God, that you would care for us, and yet you do. Because you're a God who is love. You're a God who loves us when we're at our best. You're a God who loves us when we're at our absolute worst. You're a God who cares so, so deeply for us. And God, I pray that you would just speak so clearly, God, to someone here today, God, who just needs to hear that you're a God who cares. God, help them to see that and to know that about you. And God, may it give them, God, hope. May it give them healing. May, may it give them the strength they need, God, just to fall at your feet and surrender their lives to you. God, you are so good. You're so great. You're so great. God, may our lives, Jesus, be a reflection of that. God, not because we're so special. God, not because we've got it all together. God, not because we've figured it all out, but God, may our lives be reflection of that because we in our weakness just keep on saying it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's not me. It's all about Jesus. It's, it, it's not anything that I've done. It's not, it's not about me. It's because of you, Jesus. God, may our lives constantly be reflections of your glory. God, may our lives constantly point people to you. God, I pray for our church. God, may we be a church. God, that, that glorifies your name, a church through which your name is, is seen as majestic and beautiful and glorious, not because of, of us, but because, because we've gotten out of the way and have let people see you. God, we need your help to do that. We need your strength. We need your wisdom. But God, we're asking that Jesus, God, the world around us, God, would see you through our lives pray all these things in your name, Jesus. And everybody said, amen.